Hey guys, you're listening to Speaking of Racism podcast. This is Jen Kinney. I wanted to set up today's show and I wanted to tell you about some cool things that are coming up for the podcast. So we have some changes coming and I am so excited about them. I cannot wait to share it with you, but I'm not at liberty to do so until mid-November. And yeah, I'm just really excited about it. So you can listen here. We'll probably make an announcement via podcast, but definitely pay attention to the Instagram or the Facebook page if you follow it, because that will have the most up-to-date information information available for you. I'm excited to share today's episode with you. I got to talk to my friend Corey Leak. He is a pastor, activist, and writer, and he says in his bio that he's devoted his life to contending for a better world by facilitating important social conversations on things like race, religion, sexuality, and social violence. He's led discussions through social media and in small and large groups. He's found that people have been willing to open up and share honest feelings or ideas when when we create safe environments for dialogue. This is something that I absolutely love about Corey and his work and what he does. And it is such a shared passion that I have in hosting and facilitating conversations through my Food for Thought dinner parties, having conversations on the podcast. It's this belief that when we come together and have these important conversations, seeds are planted, minds can be changed. So I'm just excited to share this with you, and I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to Speaking of Racism, the podcast dedicated to frank, honest, and respectful discussions about race and racism in the U.S. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Pull up a chair and let's talk. Special thanks to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know featuring Jay Lang. Today on the show, I am welcoming my friend Corey Leak, who is a pastor, activist, writer, and now a podcaster. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really, really excited to be here with you. I'm excited too. Today is the inaugural day of your podcast. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Yeah. So today is the, the launch of episode one of Existential, and it's a podcast where I have conversations with friends of mine about human stuff. It's human beings talking about human stuff. And, and what I mean by that is oftentimes when we have conversations about like, I don't know, whether it's race or sexual orientation or politics, all those conversations tend to get very polarizing very fast. And I think it's because we start with the issue and not with the human. So for the podcast, I wanted to start with the human and talk to people about the things they experience. And, and maybe they've had experiences that like you or I haven't had. Mm -hmm. And if I had had the same experience that they had, I might think differently about some of the issues that I get up in arms about or get upset about or, or think that everyone over there is wrong about. And so I, I just want people to hear experiences that other human beings are having so that we can start moving forward. And, and maybe not be so polarized. That is really cool. So tell me a little bit about some of the things that led up to this. Like, what, what has your journey been like in this process? Yeah, so, man, um, how much time do we have? Um, right. <laughs> I've, I have been Black for 41 years. 
So, I mean, a part of that journey is that, is that when you grow up yeah. in America and you're black, you don't really get to avoid a lot of heavy conversations about social issues. So you grow up with your neighbors and at church and your family members having these types of conversations about race that, you know, you, you may not ask for, but you have them. You know, I remember mm -hmm. growing up, my sisters would always tell me that basically that America was a racist place. I mean, when they were older than I was. And so they're like, when it's time for you to get a job, when you go to an interview, you'll see what we're talking about. And I remember being in denial a lot. I remember being like, no, no way. America's changed. You know, my mom would always take me to these white evangelical churches and, and she believed that there was a, a move of God happening in white evangelical spaces that wasn't happening at our church that was a predominantly black church. Hmm. Being in those environments, I started to see white people as like, no, these people are they're great. You know, they they love God and and, you know, they don't smoke, you know, they, they don't have affairs and they're not, they're not stealing money and they're just very humble people. And, and so it was very hard for me as, as a kid to see um, the things that I was sort of being indoctrinated with as a kid about what it is to be black in America. And then as I got older and I was working jobs and specifically when I started working in some larger white evangelical church spaces, I started to see that some of the stuff my sisters were saying and that my dad was saying actually had a great deal of merit to him. Mm -hmm. I, you know, started working at this church not too long ago. And I, I wrote about this actually in, in the blog that I put out right before I released the podcast. I was sitting at this church on a Saturday night and I got a text message from my oldest daughter. And she was asking me if I had seen all of this chatter about Charlottesville. And I had no idea what Charlottesville was. I'd never heard of it. And she was kind of new to Twitter at the time. And so you know, she was always sort of sharing her favorite bands or, you know, this music festival is happening or this thing's this funny video. So right. I, I wasn't sure if it was like a funny video or was it a concert? And then I got on Twitter at church um, and I looked and I saw the images and video clips of these white supremacists marching and chanting what were anti-people of color chants, mm -hmm. but to me, they sounded like anti-me chants. Mm -hmm. It was almost as if I saw these men looking at me and chanting my name mm -hmm. in a way that was saying, you suck, you shouldn't be here, we're better than you. And then I immediately thought, my 16-year-old daughter just saw this. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting in church and I'm like, uh, I really want to grieve this right now. Like I'm really, I'm really like broken up by this right now. This like, I'm really, really bothered, but I know my, I don't think my church is really going to have much to say about this. And so from then on, to make a long story shorter, um, I started using my platform to talk about it. I had already been bothered deeply by Flando Castillo and Alton Sterling, but I wasn't as vocal as I, as I became after Charlottesville and started using my platform to ask questions and bring up conversations about issues of race, which led to then talking about other issues. Because what I found was that as I started like feeling the marginalization of people of color, I recognized there were other groups of people that were being marginalized as well. People from the LBGTQ community, women, mm -hmm. um, immigrants. And you start to go, wait, we all like, what do we all, we all have in common that it seems like the dominant culture in America wants us to stay in our place. And from then on, you know, once I realized that and started, started sort of noticing that I went, man, I want to, I want to raise my voice. I want to use my platform. I have relationships. I have people who listen to me. So that was that. And uh, ultimately 
the church I was working for would likely not say that the reason I no longer work there is because of my platform or because I began to speak up about polarizing issues. But that's probably why why I'm not there anymore. And, and I'm thankful that I'm now in a space where I can be completely authentically honest about my thoughts on these things. I don't actually know that part of your story. And so it's really interesting for me to hear about that because I know that you had told me when we had first started talking that you left the church, that you had been let go, but I wasn't aware of the connection with your activism and you using your platform to speak out against injustice and how that likely led to your removal or your dismissal. And so to me, that's just, that's a profound thing. And yet, like you said, you're grateful for it because you have this space that you're able to exist within that is completely authentic. So tell me a little bit about that and what you started to do after you left the church that you were a part of. I was called into the office. I sat down and the lead pastor came in and he said, we're about to have a tough conversation. And I thought when he said that, I'm I'm never going to forget these words that he said to me, mm-hmm. because what I really wanted to do in my life was have tough conversations. And the irony wasn't lost on me that it was a tough conversation in a space that was really not going to allow me to spread my wings and be the person that I feel like I'm supposed to be in these times that we live in mm-hmm. that allowed me the freedom to be able to have all the tough conversations I wanted to have. So a couple weeks after that, I started writing a blog. My first blog post was, I forget what I called it, but it was basically about evangelical churches providing space at their leadership table for people of color. Mm, Wow. Um, And so I started like, you know, talking about things like that, because what I, what I left the church thinking about, and and when I say left the church, I'm actually right now in the, which we can get to later, but I'm I'm right now Mm -hmm. in the process of of still working with church and, and even planting a new style of church. So uh, I'm not like this, this person that's like, oh, church is awful. I hate it. But I, I think that what I realized about certainly white evangelical church was that there, there was a lot of talk about diversity and a desire to have black and brown faces, but mm-hmm. not necessarily black and brown culture. So as long as my black face could play the guitar and sing Chris Tomlin songs, Ooh. that was fine. Hmm. But the moment that I started to identify with black people and let's say black lives matter, then that becomes an issue because you can be black as long as it's safe black, but Mm -hmm. the black that becomes again, too dangerous too identifies too much with some of the issues in the world, like black lives matter, which, which to me, it's also bothersome to me that evangelicalism has allowed politics to take captive things like justice and race. Um, those kind of conversations, because now they don't talk about them because in the name of not being political. Oh, so, right. Yeah, right. So, so, oh. right. So something that matters deeply to a person of color, or even to a woman mm-hmm. is like, well, that's become political now. So we don't, we no longer talk about that, even when the Bible may naturally bring it up. I mean, I know I'm talking a lot. It's almost like you've poked a balloon and all this water's coming out, but I, I really good. remember. That's, that's how this podcast rolls. <laughs> I want you to talk. <laughs> so I remember during, it was sort of the peak of the Me Too movement and the church was doing a series. I forget the series what, that we were in, but there was a text that we were going to be going through from 
one of the gospels, but the story is the woman with the issue of blood who uh-huh. came up to Jesus after he had, after she had touched the hem of his garment, she, she comes up to him. And basically this, the scripture says that she told, told him everything that had happened. And I thought, okay, what better picture is there of a woman having the courage to come forward than this one? So I, I sent an email. I'm like, Hey, this is tailor made for us. Like it's right here. It's on a tee for us to really be able to, to do some good for women, to give women a, an opportunity to come forward and, and in a safe space where we'll, we'll be there for them. And it wasn't until after I left the church that I find, I found out from someone else that that email kind of bugged the lead pastor and that, that the pastor thought that that was too much and that that was indicative of, of me not getting it when it came to church and, and social issues. And that was for me, you know, just more evidence. It's like, yeah, I think that politics have, have infringed on the boundaries that were supposed to be areas where we could actually do work and help people and give voice to the voiceless. I'm sitting here listening to you and I'm just thinking about the fact that it is not until I left the institutional church that I began to realize how radical Jesus was and mm. how political he was. Well, I think that I think the term that would probably best apply to Jesus if Jesus were alive in 2019 would be activist because yeah. there was a certain amount of activism that he was involved in. And I think here's what I think we often forget is that there is a context for the life of Jesus, for the words of Jesus that is rooted in a historical time period. So it's not yes. like it's not like this happened in some far off distant place that we can't go to. Like you can actually mm-hmm. go visit Israel today, which I have done, which was an amazing trip. And you're there on the ground. It's like this happened here on this ground during a time. And what was happening in that time was very political, very politically charged. I would say possibly even more politically charged than right now, because almost every action or inaction you took was making a public declaration of who you stood for or who you stood against. Yes. So as an example, you have this, this one is this really famous passage where Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Well, you know, there are lots of scholars that look at that story and say, find it ironic that Jesus has to ask for one of Caesar's coins because he himself doesn't carry them, which in and of itself Mm -hmm. would have been a political statement that I'm not, I don't carry these coins that are supposed to elevate or tell me how divine Caesar is. So there's like a a political statement that's being made that now, again, because we are, we've become so afraid of politics when it comes to faith that, well, you know what, even when I say that, I I have a, I have a tension with that because there are Christian circles that, that have avoided politics because in a real genuine, honest way, they don't want to be associated with the white evangelicals that elected Donald Trump to be president. Right. Sure. So they withdraw themselves from anything that could be political. However, those same folks also don't want to offend the people who give big money to their churches who happen to be Trump supporters. So what they wind up right. doing is saying next to nothing and, you know, um, and then in, in, in doing so, you know, sort of taking a message that was strong and human and causes us to have a little bit of tension and making it just very cute and without anything that would bother us or, or move us. When it comes to social justice and the church, and I hate to, you know, keep to beating the same drum over and over again, but I do think that it it's also a, a byproduct of the church being afraid of politics because 
when you say the, the term social justice, we were talking off air about some of these loaded terms. Social justice mm -hmm. is a loaded term that right. makes people want to avoid it. Like you don't want to be labeled a social justice warrior as if that's actually a bad thing. <laughs> like it's a I bad know. thing to like be a person <laughs> who wants to promote the public good of all human beings. Like, no, God right. forbid I should be called, I should be called that. It's this political culture we have now that I often compare to when you have direct TV or whatever cable package you have for you know anyone over 40 who still has cable. Like you, you have like this, you might want just one channel. Like I, I might mm -hmm. just want to really want the Discovery Channel because I really want to watch Shark Week. But in order to have the Discovery Channel, I have to sign up for the package that includes HBO or uh, the sports packages or all these other things when all I really want is just Shark Week. And when it comes to politics <laughs> right now, right? Like, it's okay. like you, you, you might be a person who is, uh, you know, you might be a person who thinks that we do need more common sense gun laws and a person or and a person that's pro-life, as an example. And I, I'm not casting a, a value on either one of those, just using those as examples. Sure. Mm -hmm. People would say you can't be both of those, that you automatically have to be one. You, you automatically like one cancels the other out. And so I've never on any of my social media platforms, on my podcast, any of my blogs ever told anyone who I voted for, what my political party is. But people have wanted to meet with me and yeah. been upset with me because, and, and assume that I was a left wing person. Yes. Yes. Same <laughs> here. <laughs> so it's not even the, the typical you voted for Barack Obama because you're black stuff. It's the like, because you believe that human beings should be treated equally and fairly, because you believe that women um, should be treated with dignity and should have autonomy over what they want to do with their health. All of those things automatically put you in a box that makes people point their finger at you and think they think they know everything about you and then also can make judgments about who you are morally. And mm -hmm. that is what I think is tragic about why church won't talk about things that the Bible actually talks about. You will find mm -hmm. a greater case, in my opinion, and there may be some people who'd argue with me. I would say that they're wrong, but they may argue. You will find a, a greater... <laughs> You'll find a greater case for democratic socialism in scripture than you'll ever find for capitalism. And mm -hmm. I think that that if we're being true to scripture, we'd have to go, OK, um, how do we have a society where we are really mindful of the poor, the widow, the orphan, and we're doing justice in the world? Right. But that's just that just hasn't been the climate of evangelicalism for the last probably 15 to 20 years. Let's talk about your new endeavor and, and just the journey that you've been on over the last, how long has it been now? Over a year? It's been, yeah, it's been over a year, probably about a year and a half or I, I don't know. I, I lose, I'm really bad at keeping track of how Me long too. it's been. I mean, yeah. So time, time flies once you turn like 35. So I, I've mm -hmm. just given up. I'm older trying. than you. <laughs> You, you told me you're 41. I am 41. I'm 41 years old. I'm 42. So, but I, and are we like, aren't both of us like barely not millennials? Is that, I can never right? track. Like we're like, yeah. we're in that oh. weird, like we're two, we're, we're, we're the young end of Gen X. So we kind of get Gen uh -huh. X stuff, but we really identify with millennials, but we're not millennials. And they remind us that we're not millennials. So we're just kind of tweeners here in terms of. <laughs> Generation it's right. so true, though. I'm like, I'm like, I definitely drink kombucha, and you know, we, we roast our own coffee beans, 
And I'm getting ready to go vegan here, but don't you dare call me a millennial. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, anyway. Well, so here's so. what here's what I what I see and what I what I think is important for the world in general. The thing that, that I say at the end of the podcast is we're contending for a better world together, one conversation at a time. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. I know that there are all kinds of things that need to be done when it comes to activism, when it comes to uh, promoting the, the social good for all human beings. There's legislation that needs to be passed. There are laws that need to be you know, reworked. There are, um, you know, just all of those things I know need to happen and demonstrations that need to be made. And I'm all for all of those things. But I also think on a daily basis, on a regular basis, there are conversations that need to be had. Conversations between uh, parents to children, conversations that need to happen between neighbors, between coworkers, because a part of what um, makes it difficult for there to be change is that we don't have a lot of relational equity with people who are different than us. So I don't, you know, there's a lot of white folks that I know that don't have a single friend who's a person of color. And to my point of my, my first blog post um, that I wrote after leaving the church was there are a lot of churches who don't have a single person of color who has any vocal influence within their organization. So mm. naturally, what you're going to do is you're going to create programming, websites, social media campaigns, series, songs, everything's going to cater to white folks because there's no one in the room to say, hey, Here's an example of something that would really resonate with people of color if we just use this font or, you know, sang this song or spoke this message or, you know, any of those things. And I think that because those conversations don't happen, we just continue to perpetuate a world, certainly here in America, that is catering to whiteness, which is a construct that we need to be tearing down. But we continue to feed that beast because we don't allow voices of color to emerge and to be heard. And it's why. What I love about your podcast and, and what you're about is that you have you have said, I'm going to use a platform to create space for voices of color to be heard. And and I believe a lot of the voices of color that you have provided an opportunity to speak probably wouldn't be heard by some of your listeners if it wasn't for you, as they trust you. And so now they trust me and they trust your other guests. And so I think that this platform alone uh, has the potential, certainly in these times, to do far more to advance the common good than I think a lot of churches are doing right now, regardless of how many people they have going to them. We have a lot of work to do on a lot of different levels, but being able to have these conversations one-on-one -on -one and that, you know, and like breaking things down is more powerful than we even understand. For sure. Yeah, I totally agree. Within the realm of the church and whiteness, let I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about that for people who are listening who may be challenged by the terminology or not quite understand what we mean. So what is whiteness and how do we as a Kemeni Uwan challenged? And for those who don't know who she is, you can look her up online. But when she said that we need to divest from whiteness, what does that look like for the church and for community as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I think I have friends who I agree with who would say that whiteness is the devil. <laughs> I mean, that's just like, that's the simplest way to put right. it, that it's a construct that was created to allow people who see themselves as white or were way back in the day were sort of uh, granted that privilege to be able to 
be on the top of the social ladder. And it created a world where white is the normal culture, where white is the default culture, where everything revolves around that, where it tells the police when they come up to a vehicle who's a threat and who's not. Whiteness is the reason why we can see video of a murderer who killed three people, be completely naked, running around while police chase him. Now, police are chasing this man. He runs up to another guy and starts choking him. Meanwhile, the police, not one draws a gun, a taser, a billy club, because whiteness says that's a white person and this is how we handle white people because this there's something wrong. Right. You see what I'm saying here? Because because the default of everything normal, everything good, everything smart, everything rich, everything successful default position of that is white. So when I see a white body, my assumption is if it's malfunctioning, it's because like that's a malfunction. That's an anomaly. There's something not right. So let's not destroy it. Let's see if we can apprehend it and maybe like rehab. If that same body is black, we need to destroy it because that is how black people act. That is how black mm-hmm. men that that is that is a that is that is how all blacks are. So we need to destroy that body. And that's what whiteness gave us. This idea that people who look like me are less human, less intelligent, less capable, less responsible, that are I, I actually have been growing my hair out in locks for the last year and a half or so. And I remember mm-hmm. early on in the process of doing this, I'm not sure why I looked at up. Oh, it was back when there was all of this controversy over, I think it was a company in Alabama who wouldn't hire a black woman because she had dreadlocks in her hair. And I remember reading that article and then also looking up dreadlocks and finding out that dread, the term dreadlocks was given to black folks in Middle Passage because as the slave owners looked at these men and women on that boat and saw their hair had begun to knot, they said their hair was dreadful. Black people's hair was dreadful, oh, wow. and so it became dreadlocks. And so, from once I read that till now, I don't ever refer to my hair as dreadlocks. I call it, I just say my hair is locked, right? Because I, right. Because again, that's just more of the same. It's like the, everything about the black body, about the black physique, is dreadful. Is mm-hmm. is dirty? Is to be feared? And that is why when we talk about deconstructing whiteness, it is deconstructing the idea that somehow black is less than white. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what whiteness carries carries with it. And, and you know, so I think for anybody who's listening, who's like, well, I'm white. I, I, and I totally understand there's a there's a tension because because this is what we've been handed handed. This is what we've inherited. Like, I'm not sure that the best thing for me is, is to have the black label, but it is who I am. I'm not sure this best thing mm-hmm. is to have the white label, but it is who you are. So I think we have to be uh, smart enough and nuanced enough in how we talk and how we carry ourselves to know that we have to do the best we can with what we have, while also recognizing that what we have does lead to oppression. It leads to the lack of home ownership. It leads to police violence and other other violence. It it leads to uh, things like the war on drugs, because when black bodies are doing uh, opioids, it is a criminal case. It is. We need to roll the tanks into those neighborhoods because we have a war on our hands. But now fast forward 30 plus years and white folks are starting to struggle with opioids and it's a health crisis. So I, I mm-hmm. think it's just important that we that we see that, that we go, OK, this is what whiteness has given us. And these are the, the ideas that us having these conversations begins to deconstruct. And yes, now you have work to do to start figuring out, OK, well, what do I say to my kids and how do I handle myself? and What do I do? 
That's the great mystery that we all go in together. But if we go into it together, I think we can get to the other side. But if we ignore it, we'll just stay stuck in the system where some win and some lose. Yeah. So tell me about what you have been working on in this new church. So after I left the church, we, we set out to do a couple of things and, and I'll make this quick. One of the things that we set out to do was to create a space where we could have conversations with, bring people together to just have conversations. And initially those conversations were just going to be about race. We were targeting white men and we wanted to create a space where people could have conversations about race without feeling like you know, they, they, there were things they couldn't say because sometimes you have to be willing to be ignorant and maybe mm -hmm. suffer the consequences of being ignorant uh, in order for us to move forward. So we thought, let's 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 create a space where that's the case. And we started noticing that we had a lot of friends who were no longer going to church for many of the reasons that I said earlier in this in this podcast, um, that the church was not addressing the needs of people of color and not being empathetic enough with people of color when things like Charlottesville happen. And so we were like, man, we have all these people that don't go to church anymore. And one day my wife looked at me at lunch and she said, uh, I think we should start a church. And wow. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know who all listens to this podcast, but my response, my genuine automatic response was, oh, shit, that, that those were the words. <laughs> That came out of my mouth because seriously, because I, yeah, for, for a number of reasons. One, because my wife said it. That's not my wife. She's not the kind of person to to say let's take a risk and do something that's not stable. Secondly, it wow. felt so right that it was like, oh man, I don't know how to do that though. And I, and, and Jen, I still don't know how to do that. And this was over a year ago. Um, but what we've what the the twists and turns and the journey has led us to a place to where we are right now. Um, which is part of the re reason why you and I are talking now is because um, we are working on a network of house churches or, or small communities of faith that are inclusive. In fact, our, our vision statement is that we are inclusive faith communities look, uh, contending for a better world. And we think that in that space, there is a way to redeem conversations of faith where people, regardless of their background, regardless of whether they're they're going through deconstruction or reconstruction or no construction at all can sit in a, a room together and and sort of rally around their the 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 humanity that we all share and i believe there's something divine about our humanity that that some people would, would say that that's the yeah. imago dei the image of god that's in every human being if you're a christian mm -hmm. you'd say that um i think if you're not a christian i think i think we could all kind of nod our heads and say there is something divine about human experience. Like yesterday, I was, my kids are driving now, my older two. So I was in the back seat. My wife was in the front seat dealing with all of the stress of having a new driver. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> I was in the back seat. I rarely get to people watch as we drive. And, and I saw this old white guy and he's got like a, he's got a glass of beer and he's sitting on his front porch. And he's just, it's like, he's just looking out at the sun and he's drinking this beer. And I thought, that is such a picture of divine goodness that like it struck yeah. me like they're okay because i know what it feels like to sit on your porch after you know the days days winding down and to have a tall glass of beer and just like chill yeah him and i were brothers in that moment though i don't know his name he doesn't know me we'll probably never meet each other and that's what i mean when i say there's a divinity there's something divine about yeah. being human and so when we gather people together, what we want to do is, is to find that divine space that makes a Christian and a Muslim 
or a Muslim and a Buddhist, a Hindu person that can also be a part of a conversation that like where we all walk away going, I've got brothers and sisters who care about me and who know my story and who have similar experiences to me and who if if there's something going on with my kid or my wife or my mom or my dad, I know I've got people who are all mindful of me. And I think that is a better world than the one we're in right now. And so that's what we're that's what we're trying to build is something that that includes as many people as possible. I do realize also that some people just will not come to the table. I don't know what to do with those folks. Um, there are people there to to quote the great Christopher mm-hmm. Nolan in The Dark Knight. There are people who just want to see the world burn, and that just is what it is. I don't right. know why they're that way, but for the most part, people don't want to see the world burn. Um, they've just been convinced for so long that anyone mm-hmm. who thinks differently than them is evil, and you know. So we just want to we want to tear some of that down and, and create genuine community with people. That's amazing. And within the context of these gatherings, you're going to be having a lot of very important and serious and deep conversations. So that's another aspect that I find interesting because so often, like we were talking about earlier, the church wants to stay away from these issues that they've deemed political, Mm -hmm. right? And yet these are the things that are on the hearts and the minds of people. And this is why people are, you know, in large part, sometimes leaving because they're not finding a genuine connection and they're not connecting on issues that they care about and issues that matter to them that impact their lives and the lives of people they love. And so I think this idea of community taking place within the context of difference and true diversity mm-hmm. within an interfaith yeah. space, and then being able to come around these conversations of such importance, I think that's amazing. Yeah, and real, I mean, I love how you bring up the real conversations, because we need to remind ourselves that separation of church and state is an American invention. That's that's not something that any of, at least to my knowledge, certainly not the Christian faith. I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I'm like this expert on other religions because I'm not. But within the Christian faith, that is not a thing. <laughs> like That's not this, the separation mm-hmm. of church and state, not a way they thought, not a way they behaved. So they would have no, the, mm-hmm. the early church, the, the writers of scripture would almost have no concept for this idea that there are things within culture that we don't talk about because we're religious. It just wouldn't be a thing at all. That's fascinating. Yeah, I haven't thought about it that way before. Yeah. But that is a really good point. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we wrap up and and you share all of the places we can find you and <laughs> no, I just promote I, I you. Just, I just love what you're doing. I want to I want to sort of say that again. I want to reaffirm that I love what you're doing. I love um, you being a white woman entering into this territory. And I, I know it's not been easy for you. I know you probably catch hell on both sides. <laughs> so, you know, I'm sure I'm sure there are I'm sure there are white folks who are, who are like, uh, why are you always talking about race? And I'm sure there are black folks going, you oh, know, yeah. you know oh, yeah. why are you talking about race? And and sometimes in this work, whether you're black or white, you can't win for losing. But I just, you know, sure. I applaud that you're doing it. And I will say that I think like for me anyway, everyone who's like ever been negative, I haven't always thought, OK, well, that person's dumb or they're they're wrong. Sometimes it comes from a really genuine place. And they may have a very strong opinion that is solid, but it doesn't mean that I need to alter my voice because of, you know, stuff they're saying. So I just want to encourage you, man, and just say thank you so much for what you're doing. Thanks for having me on on your show. And I I think if there were more of these um, types of platforms happening, you know, I think it'd be better. I think the world would be better for having them. 
Well, and this is why I love what you're doing. And, and I love seeing your podcast start and just take off because the heart of what you're doing is so important. And I believe in it so much. It's part of the reason I started mm. this. You know, it's just this idea that we can come together and we can have conversations and they're not always going to be perfect and they're not always going to be neat and tidy and people are not always going to mm -hmm. agree, but that in these spaces, there is something sacred. Yes. And so I really, I just, I'm so excited to see what happens with your podcast and how it takes off and how it influences people mm -hmm. and changes people. Because the people who are going to listen to these conversations, you never know what seeds are being planted right. and how they're going to go forward with more courage to step into who they are, more courage to speak truth to power, mm -hmm. more courage, right? Mm -hmm. Like to just... Uh, take the space that they as human beings should be taking. Absolutely. You know, for sure. Contending for that world. Mm -hmm. So where can we find you? Because you are a master of many things. <laughs> you have a blog, you're a writer, now you're podcasting. Like where can people follow you? Tell us about Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. If you follow me on Twitter, I'm at Corey Evan music, uh, which is from the days that I was an artist and that's the name I went by and Twitter wouldn't let me change it. If you go to Facebook, you can find me by searching for my name, Corey Leak, like in a faucet. Um, and on Instagram, you can follow me at Corey Evan Leak, or also you can follow the at Existential Podcast on Instagram. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. And anytime you want to come back, you are more than oh, welcome. Great. Thanks for having me. One other thing that I want to talk to you about. So I've been doing this podcast now for close to a year. The new year is going to be a completely different setup. And one of the things that people ask me a lot is who are your listeners? What's your demographic? And the thing that's crazy to me is that we have thousands of downloads per episode. And I can see a little bit here and there that we have international reach and that people recommend us all over the world. And I think that's awesome. But what I would love to do is I would love to connect more with people. I would love to hear from you. I would love for you to reach out. Let me know you're listening. You can hit me up in the DMs on Instagram. You can hit me up in the DMs on the Facebook page. But what would be really awesome awesome is if you would go and you would rate the podcast and that you would leave a review. It can be a quick review. It doesn't have to be a lot, but I am going to start reading reviews on upcoming episodes. I'm taking that one from Jamar Tisby because seriously, I wrote a review for him and he read it and it was very exciting to hear somebody read my review. So I love the idea and I want to do that. I also want to work on just creating more community around this space. So if you feel so inclined, let us know what you think think? Who was your favorite guest? What have been some of the most impactful episodes for you? Who are you now following and supporting as a result of this? Anything and everything. I would just really love to hear from you guys. Thanks. 